Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Jagmeet Singh is calling on Special Rapporteur David Johnston to step aside from his role so they can call a public inquiry. Is that the right move to make? Premier Ford will reverse course on his housing plan after some backlash from farmers. And Grant LaFleche, investigative journalist with the Hamilton Spectator, joins us to chat about his series on neo-Nazism in Hamilton. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The soap opera that uh, is, of course, the uh, foreign interference scandal in Ottawa continues uh, with some variations on the theme right now. The House is debating a motion from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh that calls for the government to remove David Johnson, a special rapporteur on foreign interference, and to call a public inquiry. We've been very careful that from the beginning we believe the public inquiry is the right step, but we've never, and I don't attack Mr. Johnson personally, but I am concerned that there is a very clear apprehension of bias that undermines the work that he can do. And so at this point, we are asking for Mr. Johnson to be removed. Uh, we don't know where that one's going to go right now. It's obviously just going to require some support from, uh, well, I doubt very much the governing party is going to do that, but we'll see where the conservatives are on that. Anyway, to help us sort through this, uh, please to welcome back to the program, Muhammad Ali, who is a senior consultant for Crestview Strategies. Uh, Muhammad, great to have you back on the show. Uh, Give us your read on what you see happening here. I mean, the, the accusations back and forth, I think it's pretty well established now that not a whole lot of people have a whole lot of confidence in David Johnson to get this job done or at least go to the next phase of it. Uh, but by removing him, uh, does that get us, does that move the yard six? I mean, what, what's Mr. Singh attempting to do here? Well, Mr. Singh is trying to also protect himself, right? Like he is having calls against him saying you need to end the deal that he has with the Liberals, uh, the confidence supply agreement that ensures the stability of this parliament all for the full four years. Um, so he, he himself has to like insulate and protect himself from both internal pressure and external pressure of people saying like, why are you supporting the Liberals at this time with this uh, concerns around interference. So it's a bit of a two thing. The second is, you know, they, they want a public inquiry and this is really the only message without going as far as the conservatives and the Bloc Québécois have in terms of denigrating David Johnson. They are trying to take this middle ground of like, look, let's try to find someone who's not perceived to be compromised in terms of conflict of interest. Let's find someone that most of us can be neutral or okay with, uh, but essentially want someone who's going to call public inquiry, right? Like that's at the end of the day, that's what they want. And that's what all the parties want because they want to, uh, you know, see if they can put the government on, on full notice with that they failed in some way on the issue of foreign interference and, and are not happy with David Johnson's approach. So, it's really a two two pronged thing that that Jigmeet Singh is trying to accomplish here with his uh, statement yesterday. I mean, Mr. Polyev himself is actually daring uh, Jagmeet Singh to to withdraw his support. But if he should do that, and I, I agree with you, I don't think it's going to happen. But if Singh should make that decision, uh, that does not automatically push us into an election. There still has to be a non confidence vote at some point, and and there isn't any on the horizon at this stage, is there? Well, the, I mean, the government could could make certain things a confidence vote. Um, there's obviously we have the budget bill that's going through right yeah. now that has to pass. And then you're looking into the fall that the government could table certain piece of legislation that becomes a confidence vote. But also <clears throat> any of the opposition parties can call for non-confidence as well. Right. So 
yeah, if this becomes, if the deal collapses, like the liberal NDP deal, yes, it, it doesn't immediately trigger uh, an election. And I don't think the NDP or the liberals really want that at this point, but it then makes it more contentious or more difficult. And then it requires the liberals to have to figure out ways to find compromise. Uh, well, I mean, they already sort of are compromising by having this deal, but you know, again, now you're sort of doing it one by one as opposed to sort of having a little bit more certainty and collaboration. You now will have to have this sort of dance and tango that can delay a lot of legislation moving through, committee work and, and such. So um, I think from, from Mr. Singh's perspective, I think he's trying to maintain the access he's gained through this deal, uh, but trying to sort of also challenge uh, the government enough to so keeping those who are critical of them that matter you know not every voice that's criticizing the ndp matters just like for any other party but but he also does not have the money in the bank to run an election and that's part of why pierre uh, pierre paul over the conservatives are a little bit more have a little bit more uh firepower to the for their is because they have been able to really have strong fundraising numbers so they are much more well prepared from a financial perspective to run an election campaign today than either the Liberals or the NDP are at this point. So, you know, it's a bit of like, hey, like, you know, I know you're, you're struggling, but uh, also you really want to be tied to a losing party. Kind of, that's the message that Pierre wants to deliver. But uh, I think you, Jagmeet uh, is hesitant to really follow through on that. And I think that's probably smart for him to not, uh, call, you know, break this agreement because he's going to lose a lot of access. Well, exactly, and especially if the conservatives were to win that election, as you at the next election, whatever that's going to be, uh, his leverage is gone, and, and you can pretty much bet that Mr. Polyev is not going to follow a lot of the NDP uh, proposals and policies. It might even roll some of them back. With that in mind, though, I know we're kind of getting into the inside baseball, but this is this uh, how Ottawa works, as you know from all your years in, <laughs> in the business. Uh, Jack Meetsick could still withdraw from this support and then still have his party support the government in a non-confidence vote. Uh, just anything, in other words, to avoid an election. So, I mean, one doesn't necessarily follow the other, does it? Correct. And that ultimately could be a scenario we, we see at some point. I just, what the NDP risk is that the integrated sort of collaboration that they have been able to get and movement on certain things. So, they want action on pharmacare. They want the final full realization of dental care. Um, they're not going to be able to get that because the only reason liberals are doing that is as a means to uh, to follow through on this agreed upon milestones that were established. So uh, if they cancel that, then they are not able to find the progress that they need to go back to voters saying, look, this will be accomplished, right? That's a, ultimately what everyone needs to do when they come to an election is like, hey, what have I done for you? And and, and when you're in opposition, it's really hard to do that. You're, you're only saying, I'm, I'm ready to leave, but what have you done to actually make my life easier, more affordable and all that? Uh, in uh, the Globe and Mail, Andrew Coyne's column, uh, he's been writing extensively about this, basically suggesting that uh, the time is running out for Mr. Johnson to step aside gracefully, I think was the phrase that he used. Uh, is, has that horse already left the barn? I mean, given given the pushback that, that he's received personally on all of this stuff, uh, it's, it's going to be very difficult for him to do anything gracefully right now. And, and I don't know that the government wants to dump him. I, I can't see the prime minister saying, OK, David, you got to go. Uh, it, that's really a decision Mr. Johnson would have to make, I, I would think. Yeah, so I mean, Mr. Johnson has now tabled his 
his report, obviously, and his recommendation, uh, the government would would be in a very difficult position to now just dump him. I don't see that happening. Uh, I think what, because ultimately, even if he was to step aside, uh, the calls would still continue for the government. So, you know, unless you find a way out of it. So you're, you're sort of now tied to this scenario that has been presented to you. Uh, and really, the government is going to see how is the public fully reacting to this. Because ultimately, David Jones still has a lot of credibility in, in the general public. He was a governor general, uh, was there for Canada. Uh, 150, you know, he was there for quite a bit. He was there for a conservative prime minister appointing him the first time and now and got reappointed by a liberal. So, you know, his, I mean, ultimately, the other thing is that it, seeing what has gone and happened to David Johnson, why would someone else want to do the job? And so that's the other thing is that who do you find that would be willing to do this role in addition to the extreme public scrutiny where? Right now, uh, doesn't matter if you're a, gov- uh, a very respected governor general or, or, or whatever, you could have your entire reputation trashed in, in, in a moment's notice. So it also is a situation where even if you were to change it, who do you change to that could actually be appealing enough to everyone, but, but, but be willing to do the job knowing full well what the consequences are for, from a public reputation perspective. But from the time he did his research, and some people will question how much and how extensive that was, but here he is, you know, he's released his report almost two weeks ago now. Uh, we've unearthed more information about this. I mean, former conservative leader uh, Aaron O'Toole has been told by CSIS that he was the subject of some of this uh, Chinese uh, hanky-panky, shall we say. Uh, an NDP MP, I think from British Columbia, of Asian descent, uh, has also been identified as somebody like this. In other words, there seems to be a growing body of evidence that, that this thing is is more extensive than even David Johnson seemed to characterize it. And on top of that, of course, we had that report from CSIS, which was based heavily on information from the, the Five Eyes, uh, that, that this is the, the biggest threat to Canada's sovereignty right now. In other words, they're saying this is a real thing and this is a big thing. Uh, and that doesn't really reflect what David Johnson said in his report. Does, does that does that increase the pressure for him to say, look, maybe you maybe the report's not even good enough, let alone you know your, your, your attitude towards this right now, and then maybe it's time for you to step aside? I, I would think that that's ratcheting up by now. Yeah, I think with the, the thing that comes... That's a challenge for the government, and 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 frankly, for whether it's the members of the Five Eyes or not, no one has a solution how to figure out how to stop China from doing this what they are doing right now, right? Like I think yeah. this is this is a a point that I think is lost on on many many of those who are are, are commenting oftentimes on this or, or, or analyzing it. It is a very difficult. You have a public inquiry, okay, we're investigating, but I think really what we all want is what is the tool and solution to stop any further serious attempts at interference. Now, what we have seen in, in, in all the, the commentary and the reports by Alexis Canada, by CSIS, that our last two elections, which is where most of this um, uh, interference uh, threats have been, have been identified, uh, our elections were not compromised, right? So, are our tools actually working that is stopping the uh, interference or are they becoming more difficult to stop future attempts or are we getting very close that to like, this is the, this is the crux of everything. 
we can have the public inquiry you know talk about what's going on i think we all generally understand what's going on and, and happening right like in the day there's only also so much information that can come out from ceases but ultimately what is the tools and solutions so what i think the government and 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 hopefully through cooperation with all the parties is how do we come to a conclusion or come or develop the whether it's an advisory board or something that can help identify solutions or the tools that can help prohibit any future attempt by China or Russia or any other sort of bad actors out in the world that could potentially interfere with with our electoral process or any in our institutions in general, right? So I think that is really the crux of it. And I think that is being lost in all the rhetoric because it's obviously very easy to paint the government saying, well, you're not doing enough, you're not doing this, you're not doing public inquiry. But really it's what are we doing as a solution development process? And that is lost in all this debate right now. Well, and your point's well taken. I mean, one of the reasons there's so much uh, information from CSIS, uh, including that information from the Five Eyes, is because this is not a Canada problem. This is going on in many of those other countries as well. And, and you're right, they're, they're trying to find solutions to it as well. I, that Which doesn't mean, hey, you know, we can't just sit back and say, well, you know, it's not our problem. It is because it's happening here. But the other side of that, of course, is, is you know, where is this going to lead the government? And, and I, I guess the question that a lot of us have right now is Canada paying attention to this? And I know that sounds like a, a rather trite question, but uh, I, it's oftentimes, as you and I have discussed in the past, a lot of these problems are really magnified inside the Ottawa bubble. And, you know, in, in other parts of the country right now, you know, in, in Ontario and BC, Nova Scotia, where, where they're dealing with wildfires and in Alberta, do they care about this? It, I mean, is it on their radar or are they more worried about trying to make the mortgage payment and buy groceries? And that's a, I think you hit the nail on the head. It, what is really hitting people every day? Yeah, I think people are genuinely concerned. I think everyone wants to protect our democratic process and institutions. But if we're still in a high inflation environment, obviously it's cooling down. But if I'm having a harder time paying for my groceries or paying to, uh, for school supplies or to mortgage or anything else, then we need to, like have a reality check here. Like what, what is the focus? So, you know, that is also the government's focus. It's like, look, we, I, this is an important issue. And I think they're, they're working on this right now. The, you know, the government is implementing new measures to try and further strengthen the ability of, uh, of resilience of our institutions and intelligence agencies, but also we still have like other real challenges and, and that's what Canadians want. They're like, hey, like I'm still struggling to pay for my groceries, my main the general day-to-day expenses, my mortgage payments and everything else, right? There's there's all these different pieces that are going on that, you know, we'd sometimes lose sight of because it's, it becomes an auto bubble story. But interference is a serious issue that needs to be uh, properly addressed. And I think the government is trying. Um, and, and frankly, there needs to be a healthy debate about it to make sure we are in fact doing everything as possible to protect our institutions, protect our democracy, protect our elections. But I think the government has it is obviously focused on making sure it's doing that and doing what Canadians need on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. I will have to leave it there just about out of time. Uh, as always, great to get you on the program and get your thoughts on this. Thanks so much, Mohammed. Thanks for having me. Take care. Mohammed Ali, a senior consultant with Crestview Strategies. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We came out all in good intentions talking to farmers, as I mentioned yesterday. The number one, the number one concern 
is the kids are leaving the farm, they have no place to leave, that live. And there's many jurisdictions that won't even allow the farming families to build a home for their kids. Premier Doug Ford uh, trying to justify, uh, uh, well, a variation on, on this uh, whole thing about housing that, uh, that they introduced a little while ago. And as the Premier so rightly uh, discussed, they're getting a lot of pushback on it. This is the Bill Kelly Show. Good to have you with us here today at 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. And and this is separate apart from the, the Green Bell issue that, that we've been talking about and that the, the Premier is also getting a lot of pushback on. Uh, essentially, this is a, a, a policy uh, that they had introduced uh, that basically would allow uh, farms to subdivide uh, part of their land uh, for residential development, uh, to build a home on or maybe to build a few homes on, uh, depending on, on the circumstance. And amazingly enough, uh, the biggest pushback that, that he got on this was from a lot of the farmers themselves that said, don't do this. Uh, we don't want residential situations. We don't want more homes on farmland. And, and the reason for it was rather interesting because they said, look, it, uh, the first thing that's going to happen then is the people that move into those things are going to start complaining about the smell of the barn, the smell of this, the smell of that, the noises from the, the combines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't want the grief. Uh, an interesting sidebar to this is that I really don't know the government did a whole lot of research on this before they decided to move ahead. Uh, you know, the, the mantra, as Steve Clark has mentioned, the municipal affairs minister and the premier has also mentioned, is they just want to build more homes. But uh, uh, they may have missed this one. I want to bring our next guest in to get some perspective on this. Colin DeMello is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, who's been following this story. Uh, Colin, great to have you back on the show today. Uh, the story we're hearing now is that the premier may back down on this idea about subdividing farms. What are you hearing on that? Yeah, the premier seems to be kind of listening to or meeting with farmers and kind of, uh, you know, taking some of their feedback. Uh, the government has never been shy about making a decision, seeing what yeah. the reaction is. And if the reaction is overwhelmingly negative, then kind of backtracking on that decision. And it seems like in this case, you know, farmers had said that the changes uh, on their land would actually hamper the growth of livestock farming, would uh, fragment the agricultural land base, could uh, risk inflating farmland prices and shut out new prospective uh, farmers. This is obviously an issue that, uh, you know, would be inherently tied to the value of the land. And so a lot of them are saying, well, don't allow us to kind of sever our lots and build housing on our lots because then, A, you're losing the agricultural value of the land and B, you know, the farmers themselves might be losing the future value uh, of, of that land in, in terms of both the farming, the livestock and, you know, whatever resale value it might have yeah because by definition it, that, that is fertile land that's why it's a farm uh you know whether it's uh, you know for cattle or for growing whatever the case may be and and i found that interesting too that uh, that it was the farmers themselves that started to to really push back on this and they said this is we don't first of all we don't want residential neighborhoods on our farms uh because of as you mentioned the value of the land itself but also you know people are going to start complaining you know <laughs> It, it, anybody knows, I mean, this is the, you know, the, the planting season, you know, as soon as somebody spreads manure onto the field, the, you know, the, the counselor for that area is going to get a hundred phone calls saying what's going on. And they, they just don't want the grief. Uh, so it's the other element too, though, is, is you wonder sometimes, and you just, I think you hit the nail on the head. This government is doing things a lot differently than po most other governments did in the past. Uh, they would actually have public consultations and said, this is what we think we're going to do. What do you guys think? And then they'd come back and either push the policy through or decide to abandon it. Ford does the reverse on this, doesn't he, Colin? He goes ahead and does it and, and waits for the reaction. 
Yeah, I mean, the government often puts the cart before the horse, right? And you're right. I mean, public consultation, in theory, should come before the policy itself because, you know, you can craft better policy, sound policy, bulletproof policy by hearing the concerns from the public first, you know, maybe floating some of your suggestions to them and hearing what the feedback might be so that you don't have to go back to the drawing board after you've already come out with a policy. But this government, especially in its second term bill, seems to be quite insular. They don't communicate with the public. They don't communicate with the stakeholders, most importantly. And a lot of people have been felt kind of in the dark here. Now, now the, the bad point five million homes by 2031. And this is so important because this seems to be, you know, what is uh, really taking up the most amount of space on the dashboard for the government because they want to build these homes. They want to make a housing more affordable um, and cheaper. And of course, they, they have a lot of developers whispering in their ears as well. So they've had multiple policy measures related to building housing, but there have been a myriad of factors that have hampered their efforts. One, the, the housing economy has kind of crashed a little bit. Um, people don't want to buy new homes because the cost of mortgages has gone through the roof. And there's been a bit of a stall in building that housing. So they've come out steadily with new legislation at a rapid clip to try to convince it, uh, convince developers or make it easier for developers to build more housing. And, and this is one of those pieces of legislation. So it seems like they're rushing to kind of make sure that they can build or create the space to build this housing and tripping over themselves because now they're dealing with the backlash from the people who are affected by this, uh, who are affected by this legislation. And uh, in a related story, as they say in our biz, uh, one of those other issues, of course, is the future of Ontario Place down on Toronto's waterfront. And and again, they use the, the same, as you say, the same uh, raison d'etre. They just went ahead and did this and said, here's what we're going to do. And we're signing this other company for a 99-year lease. Uh, a lot of residents over the the last weekend went down there, as they tend to do in the summertime in Toronto. And uh, it's, all, it's all fenced off. Uh, there is no public yeah. access to it. And they're jumping up and down. Yeah, that's, I, I mean, so... so uh, Ontario Place, the West Island, is a bit of a tricky area because some parts are accessible to the public, some parts are inaccessible to the public. Um, and, and so over the weekend, there was fencing that went up. So the government said, look, you know, you know what our plan is. You know what we want to build here. You know that Therma is going to start constructing this, uh, this, this you know, monster facility, uh, you know, and they have to kind of prepare the land. So that was part of the deal that they came up with this Austrian company. They said, we'll prepare the land for you, which is fairly regular for the province, and, and you build whatever you want to build on there. So this is part of that process where they might be clear-cutting some trees, clearing out some of the space, and, and, and maybe you know getting rid of some of the old structures there that might be aging. I, I have to say, I haven't spent a lot of time in the West Island. I, I was never... Um, you know, a patron of Ontario Place when I was younger. But I went down to the West Island recently and and it, you know, truth be told, it is really in bad shape, right? There, It really is kind of abandoned. Some of the old um, infrastructure from the old rides are still there, but it kind of looks like a bit of a ghost town. And I don't know how many Ontarians certainly outside of the downtown core are really interacting with the West Island. And if you come down to the Ontario Place lands, there's actually the, the Bill Davis Park on the eastern side of the island, which gives you phenomenal views of the city and is a really good bike trail and a really good park. So there is public space for people to use. 
It's just not on the West Island, which has largely been, you know, abandoned since they closed down Ontario Place in, what, 2005. And, and that's been an ongoing problem for generations, though, hasn't it really, Colin, about access to the waterfront? Uh, the, uh, you know, where you can get it is nice, uh, you know, down a little further to, to the west as well. Uh, but a lot of it's not accessible simply because of condo developments and a lot of other things that have gone on. So I can understand how residents would say, wait a second, that's where I used to walk my dog. or that's where I, and Now all of a sudden I can't do that. And by the way, you touched on some of those old rides that may well still be there. Uh, that's another thing I think that's got a lot of people irked because with the initial proposal for what they wanted to do there, uh, there was a Quebec company that was uh, apparently going to be a minor partner in this uh, that was going to do things like zip lines and climbing walls, and uh, they're out of it now. So I, 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 does that mean that element of it, it's not going to be happening? Yeah, yeah, they they pulled out of it uh, fairly early on in the in, in the entire process, and that's largely one of the reasons why the Ontario Science Center is going to be moving to Ontario Place. Uh, they have this. Um, you know, basically a hole in what their plan was going to be. They wanted three tenants there uh, to have, you know, three attractions. One of them was going to be this mega spa. One of them was going to be Live Nation and the new concert venue there. And the other one was going to be this outdoor, um, this outdoor jungle gym kind of treetop trekking experience, which, you know, can be kind of cool, but that company had pulled out. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, from, from what I've been told, uh, the the premier had kind of asked around for what could go in that space, and that's where this idea of moving the Ontario Science Center first came from. So that's what's going to be replacing that treetop trekking experience. Well, we'll follow your reporting on this over the next little while. There seems to be a lot of confusion, and we'll wait for official announcements as to how they're going to proceed on this. As always, Colin, thank you so much for this. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. Colin DeBello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief. And of course, you can catch his reports, uh, well, Global News at 5.30 and 6. And, and certainly every time we can grab him here, too. He's a busy guy down at Queen's Park, especially these days with some of these policy announcements. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Want to move on to it, another issue that, that we need to be paying attention to here. And that, of course, is uh, neo-Nazism uh, here in Ontario. Uh, every now and then you'll hear some stories about people that may be involved in this. Uh, our next guest has done some investigative reporting on this, and it's a, a, a quite a troubling story, but a story that needs to be told here. Uh, the headline in The Spectator was Hamilton's neo-Nazis claimed to be part of the fastest growing nationalist community in Canada. And uh, the reporter who's done the work on this is uh, Grant LaFleche. Grant has uh, won a long, long list of, of awards over his years in investigative journalism uh, and has done some great work on this. And he joins us here on The Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on this. Uh, Grant, thank you for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Oh, thank you so much. Sorry I'm running a little behind this morning. It's okay. We're, we're all a little behind for a variety of reasons here because of what's happening uh, in various other aspects here in, in, the, in the country and in politics as well. What Absolutely. got you onto this? I mean, you've done some great work in, all over the country, of course, in, in, your, in your journalistic career. Uh, what, what decided was the decision maker for you to focus on, on what's happening with the neo-Nazi movement? Well, we, we actually have uh, a joint Metroland investigation that ran uh, over two parts uh, yesterday and today, looking at the rise of hate crimes uh, in Ontario. And whilst I was working on that, uh, I had uh, quite almost by accident um, found the existence of of this White Lives Matters network, uh, which, as our you know, we've reported, exists principally on the social media platform of Telegram. And once I started poking around there, I wanted to see, you know, just how, how deep it ran, how many people were involved. And what we ended up finding was 
There was a group of them based in Hamilton um, that they had thousands, you know, more than a thousand followers on their um, Telegram page. And they were part of this larger white nationalist network, which some of the accounts, the Telegram accounts in this network, have tens of thousands of subscribers. Um, which is, that's what was pretty alarming, was this was a vast network of white nationalists and neo-Nazis. Uh, and not only that, they are increasingly starting to poke their head out of the digital shadows, and they're beginning to do things in public. Um, so they seem to feel that their time is now. Now, I should just say that they claim, that the local group in Hamilton claim, that they're, part, they're, they're the fastest-growing white nationalist group um, in, in Ontario. And that may or may not be true. Um, they do say these things to make themselves seem like they're bigger and more influential than they actually are. But the, the reality is, at least in the digital sphere, um, they have been growing quite quickly on Telegram. Now, and we've seen them in, in, during various things that happened. I mean, we had some member a couple of years ago in front of Hamilton City Hall, uh, some rather messy Saturdays where there's some protests that were going on. And, and uh, there was, uh, you know, reports about neo-Nazi involvement in, in some of those. But I, I don't know that we've actually been able to comprehend just how big it was. As you started to dig deeper into this grant, were you surprised by what you found? I was a little. I mean, I think, I think that there is a sense amongst most Canadians and you will see this on social media when I mean, we even see it as we've been reporting on hate crimes, that somehow racism doesn't exist here. Somehow, you know, white nationalism or neo-fascism doesn't exist here. But it does. And while they certainly are, you know, societal fringe, these, these folks are not mainstream. Um, they exist. And because of the nature of social media, because of the existence of the Freedom Convoy, which has become like a pipeline for these groups to do some recruiting, um, they feel like they have a moment and they feel quite emboldened. We've seen the incivil incivility, right, in, in our politics uh, more broadly, not just around the pandemic, but around a whole bunch of other issues. And that kind of climate of division and anger is just the, the is absolutely ripe for white nationalist groups to begin to go to folks who are disaffected and say, well, the reason that prices are so high or the reason that you have to, you can't, you know, you need a vaccine passport to do X, Y, and Z is because of, you know, whatever group that they hate. And so then they begin to target them and they begin to pull people in. So, yeah, I mean, I was, I was surprised the numbers were as big as they were. You'd expect it, you know, to be in the dozens, not in the thousands, at least online. As you were, I was fascinated by the report too, because as as I read through some of the the, the uh, facts that you've uncovered here, uh, it, it sounded very familiar to some of the reporting we've heard about. Well, you mentioned about the convoy situation in Ottawa uh, a while back, uh, and and we know about the January sixth events in in Washington and and some of the other events that have gone on, uh, and they tend to gravitate toward those events. Is is that to give themselves a platform? I mean, they, I, I don't think anyway. Either, either prime organizers of it, but they certainly do carry on and, and, and want to gravitate and move into those and, and take advantage of the crowds, I guess, and, and take advantage of the mindset of some of those people. What 100% that's what it is. They don't need to be the organizers of it. Now, I should caveat that by saying, specifically with the Ottawa convoy, one of the primary figureheads of that was a gentleman named Pat King. And Pat mm -hmm. King was brought in because he could bring numbers uh, he has espoused overtly white nationalist ideas uh, in public, and it has not been shy about it. Um, but generally speaking, 
they don't need to be the organizers. They don't even need to be the people at the megaphone talking, you know, vaccine conspiracies or whatever. But they're there to recruit, and they do it often. And we know from our own investigation into the Hamilton group that they go to these rallies. They go to the protests at City Hall. You've seen these protests that are targeting um, drag shows around the province. And we know that, you know, the members of these um, white nationalist groups are amongst those at this protest. They're singing from the same hymn now. And because the Freedom Convoy in the main shares some of the same conspiracy theories as the white nationalists, the, the, the Freedom Convoy networks themselves become like a pipeline for, for neo-Nazis because they're already talking to people who believe many of the same things, and all they need to do is start to nudge them. To, to, to bring them a, just a little further down. And if, you know, the reason I even found the White Lives Matters Network is because I was looking at some Freedom Convoy groups that I had been tracking their, what they were doing online, and it was there that I saw the first links that got me uh, to the Telegram network, and then I had to do, you know, work to get inside them and, and see how large they actually were. Um, but you're, that's exactly it. They're taking advantage of the mindset and the climate and the divide to embed themselves and begin to recruit. It's like a business workshop, isn't it? It's networking. When they all get together, it's, they're not exchanging business cards, but they're exchanging ideas. A hundred percent. And, and you know, we, I think we have this idea, you know, when you think of things like the Heritage Front, for instance, uh, or even the Proud Boys in the United States, which, you know, had a, had a brief kind of flirtation with an organization uh, by the same name in, in the Hamilton area a few years back. Mm-hmm. Those groups tend to have definite hierarchies. There's a leadership that gets identified. Um, you've just seen, you know, the Oath Keepers, another group like this in the States, had, had folks who were at the January 6th just get, you know, very serious prison terms for sedition there. But, in, but what's happening with these groups is not that. And if, if you're looking for a group that has a hierarchy and a leader, you're not necessarily going to find it. These are, these are networks. Um, and they all sing from the same songbook. They belong to some of these online groups. Some of them meet in person to do things. They, they've been involved in vandalism campaigns in Toronto and Hamilton. Um, but they don't really have a leader. It's the idea and the ethos that connects them. Um, they may evolve to some point where they become you know, much more rigid and much more traditional in their structure. But by and large, right now, they're networked. And you get people who can be part of these networks who act for its benefit, but they're not given marching orders. They're doing it because they want to do it, and they've been radicalized online. And as you point out in the article, oftentimes they are characterized, if they do take action, as lone wolves. Uh, but they're not really. I mean, they're part of a much bigger organization, a much bigger mindset. Uh, correct. I mean, the lone wolf, I just don't like the term. I think it's inaccurate because it assumes that there's just somebody somewhere, you know, a crazy person in a silo uh, who's planning to do something awful or, 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 you know, sort of harboring insidious ideas. But the reality is they're not really lone. They have a network of, of colleagues, network of friends and allies in these white nationalist networks. And that's how they uh, get radicalized, get encouraged to do things in the real world. I mean, we do, I referenced it in our story, but we did this in The Spectator a little while ago. There's a, a, there was a white nationalist online known as Red Surge. He was very infamous on the social platform Discord um, for being a very aggressive white nationalist. Turns out he was a paralegal named Everett Ross, who was recently had his license suspended by the Law Society. Um, And he was transitioning from 
just being online to trying to organize stuff in the real world, including trying to find ways to do firearms training for white nationalists. So, and, and he was somebody who was, you know, deeply radicalized in these online communities. So was he a lone wolf? No, no, no. He wasn't taking marching orders, but he was nonetheless part embedded into and very active member of this kind of neo-Nazi network. As you were doing your research, uh, you uh, had an opportunity to contact one Elizabeth Moore, yeah. uh, who uh, used to be uh, part of these organizations. Uh, she she has left. Uh, I'm sure she was very helpful in, in pulling the curtain back on a lot of these activities. Well, Miss um, Moore was interesting because she was a former member of the Heritage Front in the 1990s when it was at its uh, absolute peak before its activities had been um, you know, unveiled by, by CSIS. Um, but it was interesting because she was able to point out that even though the way these groups are structured now are somewhat different because of social media and they're not meeting in person, um, the actual messages haven't changed. I mean, the stuff the Heritage Front believed in the 1990s about Jews and the LGBTQ plus community and black people and Asian people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are all the same. They're exact same messages. What's different now is their capacity to reach people. They couldn't reach people as easily in the 1990s. She used to write a newsletter uh, for the Heritage Front. But I mean, it's, it's almost like printing a newspaper, right? There's logistical mm -hmm. costs to doing that. You have to print it. You have to distribute it. That's all time consuming and costs money. Online, it's cheaper, faster, easier, and you can potentially reach a lot more people. So what was interesting was how she was able to show me that the stuff we see in these White Lives Matters networks is the same rhetoric that white nationalists and neo-Nazis have been pushing for 50 years. It's just now they're much more savvy about it, and they're able to reach a much larger audience a lot faster. Uh, boy, there's so much more I want to get into, and I want to just about out of time here. I want to direct our listeners uh, to the, you can go to the spec webpage, by the way. And uh, I think part one is still up on the page, and of course, uh, part two uh, about this. And uh, there's so many questions that are raised here, and, and uh, I think what's so important about this is the timing. You know, we were just talking before you joined us about Pride Month next month, and, and how there's yes. a pushback on that. And as you say, I don't, I don't know what their perspective is. I mean, you, as you said, they're the ones that seem to say this is growing faster than, than anybody could ever imagine. But it just seems as if because of people's mindsets, because of the frustrations in this country right now, uh, they're looking at this as fertile ground for them to, to, to expand their work and expand their mindset. Well, that's why we say in, the, in, you know, there's actually three parts to our story. There's part one and part two on hate crimes yesterday and today. And then uh, on Monday, um, it was when we ran our story specifically about the neo-Nazi groups. And by the way, you'd be able to read these in The Spectator in print uh, if you're a print reader on Thursday, Friday, Saturday uh, this week. Um, but yes, the, again, the, the, the timing of it is not coincidental. It's not accidental. We're living in a very divided, politically intense, politically riven time for all kinds of reasons. And that tends to push people to the margins. And some of those people who get pushed to the margins or are suffering economic strife or are dealing with some kind of problems because of all these other things that are happening around us, um, they end up turning to these groups and they're, they're, they're ripe to be recruited. And I think, you know, one of the things in our story today um, that, we're, that we talk about is the efforts to counter, um, to, to counter this sort of stuff, including de-radicalization projects. And you'll read about one at the John Howard Society, which is particularly interesting. 
But these efforts are very small, and they're sort of in pilot form, and they're not keeping pace with the rate with which these groups are expanding and trying to spread their influence. And so it's a, it's a very difficult problem that we're going to have to grapple with, because as these problems mount, as we, we have to deal with stresses of the economy and climate change, and, you know, God's willing, there's not going to be another serious pandemic uh, looming around the corner, and, you know, problems with democracy and Chinese interference and so on and so forth, those things are going to keep pushing people to the margins. And so there's going to have to be a better effort to countermand them, or this is going to become a much more serious and much more intractable problem than it currently is. Exactly. And we've seen it manifest itself, as you mentioned, in some of those other incidents, whether it's the uh, the, the truckers' convoy or the uh, January 6th insurrection in Washington, et cetera, et cetera. It's a must-read. Uh, I've got my print copy right beside me here, and I'll be going over that again. And, of course, uh, they can check it out on spec.com as well. Uh Grant, so thank you so much for the great work that you've done. I mean, you've won a ton of awards because of your, your tenacity in, in going after these things. And uh, we're so glad that you uh, could spend some time and talk to us about this today. Thank you so much. Oh, anytime. Thanks for having me. Take care. Grant LaFleche, who's an investigative journalist with the Hamilton Spectator. And check this out uh, about the neo-Nazi movement here in southern Ontario. It's uh, it's chilling, but uh, absolutely necessary that we understand exactly what's happening around us. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.